So John chapter 3, page 775. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles that neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. In Jonah chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee from, to Tarshish. For I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, so to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east side of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord had appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for a plant? And Jonah says, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity a plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray before we unpack this chapter together. God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the power of your word. I want to thank you that you're a God that wants to speak to us through your word. So we ask that you, Holy Spirit, will come and will be our teacher. So we invite you here, Holy Spirit, to help us to set aside the distractions of our day, of our week, of our life, of this moment, so that we can just come in close to you and hear 
from you tonight. So we pray, come and have your way. And we ask these things in your name for your glory. And everyone said, amen. Well, last week we began this series in Jonah chapter 1 and 2. And if we're honest and look back at Jonah chapter 1 and 2, it wasn't a very good day at the office for our boy Jonah. Very disappointing start to the book. He's a prophet, which means he's got a really simple job description. And his job description goes like this. Go where God asks you to go and say what God asks you to say. Go where God asks you to go. Say what God asked you to say. And God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh, a mere 500 mile walk. But Jonah doesn't want to walk 500 miles. Jonah doesn't want to be anywhere near Nineveh. And he does everything in his power and in his strength to get as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can. So he walks a bit, and then he jumps on a boat, and then he sails for a bit, and he tries to get himself 2,500 miles away in the opposite direction to where God wanted him to go. He goes to extreme lengths to get away from where God wants him to go. And as that little stunt in the opening of Jonah chapter 1 that earns him the nickname the runaway prophet or the runaway preacher, or the reluctant prophet, or the reluctant preacher. Of course, Jonah's little Mediterranean voyage on Tarshish cruise lines is interrupted by a violent storm. And we end chapter one with Jonah being thrown overboard. And Jonah's plans, like Jonah himself, are sinking fast. Then we come to chapter two. And chapter two is where things get really interesting. See what I did? Some people go, what I did there? See, I worked hard in that joke all week. (laughs) Gets really interesting because a big fish, possibly a whale, swallows Jonah. So we move from Tarshish cruise lines in chapter one to a hotel belly of a big fish in chapter two. Jonah checks himself in for a three-day, non-inclusive, non-luxurious, room without a few, in this hotel belly of the fish. However, it appears that this little spell of isolation has actually been really good for Jonah. Seems it's exactly what he needed. Because during those three days, he has time to think, he has time to reflect, and he has time to repent. And then the big fish vomits and enlightened and changed Jonah onto dry ground. And that's how we end chapter two. So we come to chapter three tonight, and Jonah goes to Nineveh. Jonah is to go to Nineveh, that great city, and he is to go with a message. So finally, 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 Jonah gets with the program. If only he had done this at the beginning of the book, then Jonah could just have been two chapters long. We could have avoided chapter one, and we could avoid it chapter two, and we could just have started straight in at chapter three. But it seems that he now has got his act together and he is en route to one of the most powerful cities in the world, this great city of Nineveh. And Nineveh is a great city. We read there that it's so large that it would take you three whole days to walk right through it. 
But the reference to great in chapter 3 is probably more likely God's reference to how great the evil is and how great the wickedness is in this great city. And if you remember back to last Sunday night, we said that Nineveh was not a very good place. It was a very evil and very wicked and very violent place, guilty of some of the worst atrocities and some of the most barbaric of behaviors that were known to man back in those times. They were an enemy to God's people, Israel. They were the superpower. They ruled. They had a powerful king. They had a powerful army. They had a powerful kingdom, and they ruled with fear and intimidation all throughout their time. But here is Jonah in this great city. He goes and he now has a message. If you think back to chapter one, in fact, if you have your Bible in front of you, you can look back to chapter one. And in chapter one, verse two, God says this to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up against me. Doesn't that sound very similar to what God says here in chapter three, verse two? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now remember, Jonah is a prophet. Now I know I'm laboring this and I'm repeating this, but this is so important. What is a prophet? A prophet is supposed to go where God asks them to go, and a prophet is supposed to say what God asks them to say. That's very important to understand what is happening here in chapter 3. Go where God asks you to go. And it seems that Jonah, after a lot of reluctance, after going in the opposite direction, after a few detours, detours and a few awkward moments along the way, it seems that our prophet is finally in the place where God asks him to be. Now, all he has to do is say what God tells him to say. So, you expect the new and improved Jonah to just listen to God. And whenever God tells him what to say, he will tell the people in Nineveh. But as you read the chapter, chapter 3, you notice that's not how it flows and that's not how it goes. Notice what happens. In chapter 3, Jonah does not wait for God to tell him anything. All he simply does is set up the stage. He brings his little portable speaker system. He plugs in his little microphone. He gets his little lectern like the one I have here. He positions it nicely, gets the right light, gets the right angle, gets everything set, and then he just lets rip with a sermon. It's a short sermon. It's a blunt sermon. It's a direct sermon. If you look at verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Or as other versions put it, 40 days from now and Nineveh will be destroyed. And that's it. He drops the mic and he just walks off the stage and he just leaves behind a massive crowd of people. And that's it. An eight word sermon. Oh, for an eight word sermon, I hear you groan. It'd be lovely to hear an eight-word sermon tonight. Just drop any eight words and me just walk out the door. That would be that would be lovely. And you all, with that big smile I can see you in your face, are also agreeing that that would be a lovely end to the night. But how do you feel about Jonah's eight-word sermon? Like whether it's eight words or 
80 words or 88 words or 100 words. How do you feel about his sermon? It's your classic turn or burn sermon. It's your classic trust or combust type sermon. There's not a single ounce of love. There's not a single ounce of grace. There's not a single ounce of compassion in these eight words. And you know what? I think that's the point. I think that's the point of Jonah's sermon here. And maybe we're not expecting that. Because maybe we still read this or listen to this sermon through the ears or the eyes of what we always have. I don't know if you went to Sunday school. If you went to Sunday school, Jonah like guaranteed you heard a story about Jonah. Guaranteed you colored in some kind of fish. Guaranteed you did something with the life of Jonah in that. And sometimes that's how we read this and that's how we still think this book goes. So here's what we think. We think that in, mis- that in chapter one, Mr. Jonah was a naughty boy. He's a naughty boy, boys and girls, because he didn't do what God asked him to do. Mr. Jonah is really runaway preacher. And he runs as fast and as far as his little legs could carry him. But boys and girls, you know what happens whenever we don't do what God wants us to do and we run away from God? Well, boys and girls, you end up in a pickle. You end up in a pickle like Mr. Jonah does in this passage. Hands up, boys and girls, if any of you want to spend the summer in kids' camp hotel belly of the fish. No, boys and girls, I didn't think anyone would want to spend a place in that nasty, smelly place. Well, do you know how Mr. Jonah got out of his pickle, boys and girls? Well, he prayed. He prayed to God, and he had a change of heart And he got out of that big fish and he went and did exactly what God asked him to do and we all lived happily ever after. And that, boys and girls, is the story of Jonah. On your way out, pick up your craft. Please take that to your parent and they will pretend to be delighted at what you bring home to them. (laughs) I guess that's maybe how we see this passage. But here's a better question. Here's a better question. Does Jonah have a change of heart in this? Because I always thought he did. I always thought like chapter two was his big repent chapter and everything turned around and everything went perfectly, swimmingly well after that moment. But it doesn't seem like that's how this story goes. Because I'm not persuaded that he does actually repent at the end of the chapter. Doesn't it sound to you like he's just trying his best to preach the worst, most rubbish, unprepared sermon that he possibly could? You need to think back to why he might be doing that. He hates Nineveh. He hates them. He despises them. He does not want to go to them. And he does not want to go to them with a message of love and grace and mercy. He doesn't want God to look on them with favor. He just wants them to be judged. He just wants condemnation. He wants to preach the worst sermon, the most rubbish, unloving sermon, so that the people of Nineveh go, well, hey, I don't want anything to do with that message. I don't want anything to do with you. Jonah, and then Jonah gets his way. How did the people respond in chapter 3, verse 5? Well, the entire nation get saved. 
Like, who saw that coming? They, the entire nation get saved. They believe in God. They repent from the, le- from the greatest to the least. Even in verses 6 and 9, the king steps off his throne. He takes off his robe. He puts on ice cloth, and he sits in ashes. That was symbolic of bad days, morning days, dark days, days where you weep over your sin and repent. So the king does that. A leader surrenders his authority and his position, and he humbles himself before God. That is repentance. That's what repentance is. An eight-word sermon, and everyone gets saved. An eight-word sermon, and there is revival in the land. So as you come to chapter four, what do you expect to find in chapter four? Well, don't you expect to find Jonah to be very happy at the beginning of that chapter? Like he's on his first day. He's on his first mission trip. He's just preached his first sermon and he's just seen revival. Eight words and there's been revival. 120,000 people got saved in that one sermon in that one day. Like he could have started the first St. Nineveh Church of Ireland if he wanted and his congregation would be massive in one day. That's the most successful mission trip church plan ever. She expect him to be happy, but he's not happy. He's very angry in this chapter. Look at first, or look at chapter four, verse one. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. Well, I wonder what these change of plans were that upset our boy Jonah. Well, we get to see that in verses two and three of chapter four. And I'm paraphrasing this. Jonah says this to God: "I told you, God." I knew this would happen. The very reason I ran away in the first place was because I knew you were full of mercy and compassion and slow to anger and full of unfeeling love. I just knew that you would spare Nineveh. And I'd rather be dead than watch Nineveh enjoy any of your grace. Imagine the prophet. Imagine who's supposed to be the hero of our story coming out with a few words and a few lines like that. He is annoyed because God is good. He is annoyed because God is full of compassion. He is annoyed because of God's unfailing love. How can you be annoyed at that? Well, let's go back to the question that we asked last week. Where is or what is your Nineveh? Where is or what is your Nineveh? Because here's Jonah's perspective. If Jonah or God, he would have wiped out every last one of them. He would have completely destroyed Nineveh. There would be no Nineveh. He would destroy it, wreck it, rain fire from heaven down on top of them and get rid of that evil, wicked, horrible nation in his opinion. And isn't that what he's hoping for in chapter four, verse five, as he takes a seat? Way over to the east side of the city, he goes up onto an elevated point, sits on his deck chair and looks down from the height on this nation. And I have a picture of him just sitting there on his deck chair, looking down from his height with his little 40-day countdown timer in his hand, waiting for it to hit zero and waiting in that moment for God to destroy Nineveh, not save 
Nineveh. So Jonah is angry because God is not acting the way Jonah wants God to act or the way Jonah thinks God should act. Jonah isn't a great Old Testament character. What an understatement that even is. He's reluctant. He's huffing. He's sulking. He's going in the opposite direction. He's doing his worst sermon, trying his worst sermon. But there's a bit of a change in his mood in verse 6. In verse 6, he is totally exposed to the sun's intense heat. God appointed a plant to grow, and that plant grew a leaf. That leaf gave shade over his head and stopped the intense sun beating down on him. And in verse 6, it says that Jonah was exceedingly grateful. He was exceedingly happy. You notice that? The only time that he is happy in this entire book is at this plant giving him some shade. And I don't want to disrespect you gardeners out there, but he's only happy one time over a stupid plant. That's it. The one time he's happy, and it's over this plant. And for seven, his happiness, however, is short-lived. As God appoints a worm, it's through the plant. The plant dies. The, the leaf that was providing shade vanishes and is no more, and the intense sun comes again, beats down on Jonah's head, and he becomes very faint. And back to his usual style, he becomes very angry. And then in verse 9, God says to Jonah, is it right that you are angry over a plant that died? And Jonah shoots back straight away, and he says, yes, God, angry enough that I want to die. And then God responds in verses 10 and 11, you feel sorry for a plant, though you did not put it there. It, it came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Jonah is only concerned one time, and it's over himself, and it's over this plant. He's not one bit concerned about these people. He doesn't care that they perish. He doesn't care where they go next. In fact, I think, excuse my language, I think he just is happy that they go to hell. Literally, just go to hell. That's all he wants in this entire book. Since chapter 1, Jonah cares nothing for Nineveh. He doesn't care what God wanted him to do, and he doesn't want to do what God has asked him to do. From chapters 1 to 4, Jonah is defiant. He shows no compassion to anyone in this book. Jonah is happy just one time. It's over a plant. He is concerned just one time, and it's when that plant dies. But he is not concerned for the 120,000 real-life people. Not plants, real-life people who are perishing, who are lost. So how are we going to end this series and how are we going to end this book? Well, what I'd love you to do is turn in your Bible to chapter 5 of Jonah because chapter 4 was not a great chapter. He's painted in such a negative light, such a rubbish light as he painted in. I'm not happy with how chapter 4 ends. So let's go to chapter 5. Keep fistling through the pages there, you will find it. And let's discover, as we turn the page to chapter 5, how Jonah actually gets with the program. Let's discover how he 
repents, how he goes back with his Bible notes, how he preaches a great sermon, and how he starts a church and becomes one of the best missionaries and evangelists that Nineveh have ever known. Chapter 5, you there? Let's begin at verse 1. Well, of course, there is no chapter 5, which you have picked up already. There is no chapter 5. And doesn't this book end in such an incomplete way. The reason I'm saying turn to chapter five is because don't you expect there to be, there has to be a chapter five. Keep flicking and turning the page. There has to be a chapter five to tidy this story up because surely we're not just gonna end on this cliffhanger. Surely we're not just gonna end with this disappointment of Jonah here. Because here's what's happened. As we end this book and as we end this series and as we come to the end of chapter four, like Jonah cannot look any worse. Like it's impossible to look any worse. Think back to chapter one. You had pagan sailors who repented in chapter one. You remember that? Jonah doesn't repent. You had the whole evil city of Nineveh that repented in chapter 3, but Jonah doesn't seem to be doing much repenting. You have the king of Nineveh who humbles himself, steps off his throne, surrenders to God, surrenders his own kingship to God. Jonah doesn't do that. As one person steps down, Jonah's climbing higher and higher up a mountain to look down on this people. He looks down condescendingly and he hopes that Nineveh get no grace and no mercy. God is giving life in this book. Jonah just wants to end all life. God shows pity towards this evil nation. Jonah's just wrapped up in his own self-pity. So what is really going on in chapter four? What is really going on in this book? Well, Jonah as a character as a prophet, as a role model, as a leader, as a hero is seriously disappointing. And I guess that's the point as we come to the end of this book. He is so disappointing. Jonah isn't the great hero and he isn't the great savior that we all hoped or longed for or actually needed in this book. And for that reason, the spotlight must move. It must shift from Jonah to someone else. The spotlight has to shift from someone who was reluctant to go on mission to someone who gladly came on mission. The spotlight must shift from someone who runs away from evil to someone who runs towards evil. The spotlight must shift from someone who does not want God's will to be done to someone who prayed not my will, but your will be done. The spotlight must change from someone who looks down on the city with zero compassion to someone who also looked down on the city and was moved with compassion and wept over that city. Jesus is our greater Jonah. Jesus is our greater savior. And Jonah forces us to shift the spotlight from the book of Jonah and from Jonah and shift it across to Jesus. Because only in Jesus have we hope. Only in Jesus have we someone who looked on us, not Nineveh, but looked on me, looked on you, looked on East Belfast, looked on our city, looked on our land, looked on our world with pity and was moved so much that he stepped off his heavenly throne, in a sense, and came to earth 
to die the death that we deserve to die. And he did that with love and compassion and grace from people to, towards people who just did not deserve that. Can we get any comfort from Jonah? I think we can. Because here's what the comfort I take from Jonah. God still used Jonah. He still used Jonah's eight-word, disinterested, half-hearted sermon to save a nation. Like that should not have happened. But God, in spite of Jonah, used Jonah to save pagan sailors and also to save this pagan nation called Nineveh. And if God can save Nineveh, then God can save Belfast and he can save Ireland. And if God can save Nineveh, then he can save in your home, he can save in your street, and he can save in your community. And he can save that prodigal son or daughter. He can save that spouse or partner. He can save that wayward son or daughter or grandchild. He can save that person. Name them, whoever they are. He can save them, break into their life, change their life, turn their life upside down, and he can use you to do that. Because our God is mighty to save. And here's the thing, it doesn't land on us. It doesn't stop on us. The weight and responsibility of this is not on you and me. It's on God who is mighty to save and he can save and he is able to save and he will save. And that is why we are praying and contending over these 100 days and we are asking God to awake our soul and our city and our land. And we are praying to a God who is mighty to save, to do amazing works in our land. And we are asking in the Holy Spirit to sweep and to move and to breathe and to send revival so that we can see the name of Jesus lifted high, so that people can look at Jesus, not at Jonah, not at a half-hearted eight-word sermon, but can look at this, that God can move in the hardest, most out-of-reach, most untouchable, darkest lost places. Our God is mighty to save. So I encourage you to keep praying. Even if your prayers feel like they are hidden off the roof tonight, even if you've been praying for someone and you've been praying for someone and you are praying for someone and you've been praying for someone, you don't see any results, you don't hear any results, I encourage you tonight to dare to keep on praying. Dare to keep on praying to the God who is mighty to save. Let's do that. We're 33 days into this 100 days. Let's keep contending. Let's keep praying. Let's pray.